0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined this time by Teddy Jameson, who is, in the words of his Twitter profile, a Herald writer, a sports fan, book lover, tea drinker, who dances with himself. Teddy is a highly regarded journalist with the Herald newspaper based in Glasgow, a senior features writer. Well, he's also the author of an excellent memoir, Whose Side Are You On? Sport, The Troubles in Me, which tells the story of him growing up in Northern Ireland and the role and importance that sport played during the Troubles Teddy, thanks for joining us on the Read All About It podcast. People I listen to you may recognise either the name or or the book because I I did a previous podcast where I I picked some of my favourite sports books and that was one of them because at the time when I read it, I thought it was, it's about so much more than sport, obviously, your memoir, but I just, I think it's such a a brilliantly written book and so captivating about such an interesting period in, in the history of Northern Ireland.
1: Yeah, it feels a long time ago. So it came out in 2011, so that's nearly a decade ago. And it, it, just, it just feels like, oh, that's ancient history now, given everything that's gone on in the world since. But it was an attempt to kind of look back at my childhood in, in Northern Ireland, my teenage years in Northern Ireland, and my relationship to the place I grew up in. Um, because I was six, I think, when the Troubles began, five, six, depends when you when you define when the Troubles began. And I left in 82 to go to university in Scotland, and I never went back. And yet I still consider myself Northern Irish. That's, you know, if, if you ask me, that's what I'd say. But that, what does that mean? What did Northern Irishness mean to me? Well, Quite often, I, I, thinking about it, I realized that it was about sport. It was about my relationship to whether it's the Northern Ireland football team or um, boxers like Barry McGuigan, George Best, obviously. So I saw, you know, my Northern Irishness expressed through them and my relationship with them. So I guess the book is an attempt to do all that but also to look at how the troubles impacted on sports and the, the people that, that took part. You know, that, that whole idea that, oh, sport and politics shouldn't mix. Well, of course it mixes. It's inevitable it mixes. It can't not mix. So it was, it was an attempt to kind of look at how how the kind of toxic politics of place in the 70s and 80s impacted on the sports people who came from that part of the world. Yeah,
0: interesting. You know, you mentioned it, 1982. I think it was. You said you moved to yes. Scotland, which was obviously probably the key year for the for the national team, given their success in the the World Cup in Spain that year.
1: I, I moved to Scotland in September to go to university, so I'd watched the World Cup in '82 on my sofa in Northern Ireland. One of the bizarre things I realised when I was doing the book was that the night Northern Ireland beat Spain in Valencia, um, that famous one 0 victory. Jerry Armstrong's goal was also the night my dad was blown up by the IRA. Um, it was. It, it was fine. It wasn't. It, it wasn't a, a really. How could. How to describe it? It was a big bomb, but it. It didn't actually injure him in any way. He was just a, a little bit shook up by it. So I had somehow, in the years between, you know, that happening and the writing the book, had somehow separated these two events in my head. One because one of it's one of my most favourite sporting memories, and the other one, this terrible thing that happened to us, you know, this shocking thing that happened to us. Yeah, and as I was only researching the book, I realised, well, that date's very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, mm-hmm. and I had to I had to actually my father was in the in the Ulster Defence Regiment the the kind of part time regiment and um, I'd phoned up the guy who wrote the history of the of the regiment to just to check the dates and say have I got this right is this the same and it and it was so basically what happened was that Northern Ireland he'd gone out on patrol that night I guess I'd watched the game and a few hours later he had been you know he'd been his um, vehicle was driving down the road when there's a, a, you know a roadside bomb was set off thankfully no one was was hurt. So, so 82 is quite a big year, yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When I was just reading, obviously, out at the start, just your week in a of Twitter profile, obviously you're a writer, sports fan, which again alludes to yes, the... Yes,
1: we all have our crosses to bear.
0: <laughs> the passion of football, a book lover, which is obviously one of the, the things we'll be talking about here, and tea, drink a Just when Just before we started recording, you'd mentioned that I think one of your first jobs, or your, your first job was as a bookseller.
1: So I went to Stirling University in the, in the early 80s, graduated in 86, joined the civil service where they t- tried to teach me to be a computer programmer and failed quite miserably, or I failed quite miserably. And I then got a job, I'd, I'd done a little bit of work in bargain books, I don't know if you remember bargain books. Yes, yes, I do, yeah. um, From there I got a job in um, Hatchards in Stirling. So Hatchards came up to Scotland and I worked and Hat Charge we and who were taken over by Dillon's. So I worked there for about five, six years. So that was my first real job after university. Lots to like about it, lots to hate about it. You know, it's a retail job, but it has, its, <laughs> it has its low pay and all of those things. But I was surrounded by books, which was like, you know, I couldn't imagine a better situation to be in. Yeah,
0: because I've spoke to a couple of people who review books for newspapers and it's always one of those things that I think I'm so envious of. But then also wonder for book readers, there is probably a, an appeal where they think of working in a, a bookshop, as you say, surrounded by books all the time. But, you know, there is a kind of split between that perfect ideal of it and then the reality of you're working in, in a shop and it's, it's long hours, it's hard work low pay, you know.
1: All of those things. But but at the same time, you are surrounded by books. And, you know, there were days when I was... Um, the the bookshop in Sterling was on two floors and the days when I was upstairs, which was the quieter floor, there were days when I would be sitting reading a book behind the till, you know, and quite happy. So, you know, it, 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 had, its, it had its upsides.
0: And it, it, was it at that, that point when you were there that you... Then look to go into the world of journalism, or had you been looking at that anyway while you were working in the bookshop?
1: Uh, well, I think yes. The, I, I began to to do some writing at that point for the list. there's a, a magazine called Scottish Child, which is I think long since defunct, the and they were looking for writers, and I, I did some work for them and some music reviews for Tenants Live News, a kind of publication that Tenants, I guess, the the, the brewers, um, sponsored. So yes, I began at that time. You know, I was I was beginning to try and kind of put feelers out and, and see how how do I do this. Eventually I went back to university and did a postgrad journalism course at Strathclyde and Caledonian. That was the early nineties. After that I, I joined the Herald. The Herald was actually one of the it was I think the second newspaper online in Britain. And I was kind of part of its online team right at the beginning. Which was a kinda of curious thing. But it, it did me I do remember On the morning of Dumbley and I was the person who was writing as live from news feeds at that point, because that was, you know, the first real big event that we were covering, you know, online, live as it were.
0: It's funny, I was in the I, I was working at the Evening Times at that point. So I would have been Don't in like the, in that building in Albion Street in the newsroom and I always remember that day that it was just it's actually hard to describe, you know, when that, that was breaking news and, and it was progressively getting worse as people realised the enormity of it. But then as you know, having to then still keep your, your work head on and, and because you're still having to produce the news for people to read.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's very much the case. Yeah, I was downstairs in the basement on my own doing that. So right. <laughs> it was a very, it was a very strange morning. But yeah, so so I did that for a few years, and then went on to the production desk at the the Herald Features Department, and then a couple of years later, started working the magazine.
0: And the rest, as they say, is history.
1: Yeah, a lot, a lot of history. <laughs>
0: In terms of the podcast, obviously people will be familiar with the format of we just, I just ask people five different topics, taking you Mm. right back to your your childhood. So the first book, I always say your favourite book from childhood, and it was interesting when you'd you'd sent me kind of your choices and you mentioned a couple of different authors, but you, you kind of mentioned that the fact that you read, comics marvel mostly and then i always think it's funny where you you'd said it was a gateway drug to a lot of genre fiction is that okay to talk about and i always have to say to people there's no rules here so you can yeah, yeah. You, you can talk about that it. it's quite i quite like it the fact it's just a different kind of choice of because i suppose a lot of young people maybe especially young boys comics would have been a way in, yeah. into reading
1: i think so i mean i did read i, I remember loving michael bond's parrington books they were my favorites and there was, a, there was a writer called Itchy e. Todd, who wrote the Bobby Brewster books, which are a very 1960s thing, I think. Don't seem to be in existence anymore. Uh, but no, comics were, were the, my main kind of, apart from the odd football annual, comics were my main source of reading. And, you know, I started with the Bino and the Dandy and um, the Victor and the Hotspur, all those British comics. But it was mom, when my mum brought back a copy of Spider-Man Comics Weekly, uh, number five, I believe it was. Spider-Man versus Mysterio. I, I remember it very well. Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys, I think, was the editor at that time. Right. Wow. Uh, he was a Mar- he was a Marvel editor before he went on to Smash Hits. That was the kind of the moment, as it were. It was just like a revelation to me. And next week I went out and bought Spider-Man Comics Weekly number six. And that started a kind of decayed, real intense involvement with the Marvel universe, as it were. Became really obsessed by it. Um, so much so that you know, I kind of failed exams and things like that because the only thing in my head was, who was Spider Man fighting that week? That kind of thing. Would Peter Parker get a date with Gwyneth Stacy, etc., etc.? Although Mary Jane Watson was actually my favorite. So, okay. yeah, that went on for that was, it, and it was a gateway drug because. At that point, Marvel was in the seventies. was was kind of expanding, and 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 they were going into different genres. So there are lots of horror genres, horror horror comics, sorry, and uh, sword and sorcery comics, etc. So and I, and I would read the comics, and then read you know the fiction they were based on. So I'd read *Tomb of Dracula* and read Bram Stoker. As a result, I'd read *Conan the Barbarian*, and then read the Robert E. Howard stories in which they were based on. And from Robert E. Howard, and then start reading Michael Murcock and Michael Murcock would take me to all these 1960s science fiction and fantasy writers. So in that sense, I, I read Kung Fu comics and then read Sax Romer, which is not, <laughs> not something to put on your CV these days, I guess. Um, but, you know, so in a sense, it was it's through comics. I kind of started reading a lot of genre fiction across the board, which is always interesting to me. It wasn't like it was a new thing, but I started reading lots of science fiction and fantasy and horror and thrillers as well. You know, I, I guess that, you know, you can trace a path from Marvel Comics to liking Raymond Chandler. So, so yes, it very much was a gateway drug for me.
0: What I think is interesting about that is that sometimes, you know, when people would think that you'd just read comics as opposed to books, that's the way sometimes people would work or they would be trying to encourage younger people to read books as well as comics. But the fact is that comics, as you say, they open up that curiosity of the love of reading, but then the curiosity to find out where those stories have come from. And then that takes you on that journey that maybe people wouldn't presume comics could do for you.
1: I think that's very much the case. I mean, you know, don't uh, teachers say you know any reading is better than no reading? And I think I think they're they're a form in themselves. And so I still read. I still read comics for want of a better word, graphic novels. I, I guess you would say is the phrase these days. And that comes from that you know initial absorption with Marvel, which then kind of filtered out. I read, started reading indie comics, and I still read graphic novels today. And I would happily recommend Art Spiegelman's Mouse which is about the Holocaust. It's an astonishing, astonishing book. I'm a huge fan of the Hernandez brothers who've been writing comic strips from the early 80s and I I think Jaime Hernandez, Maggie and Hopi strips are probably one of the greatest works of literature in the late 20th century. It's an astonishing achievement. Um, so, you know, it's never been a lesser form, but certainly it was a way in which, you know, I, I connected to a, a wider wider world of literature.
0: But how do you feel, obviously, in recent years, it seems to me that filmmakers have realised there's this whole raft of stories mm. that never ending, seems to be a never-ending supply of films that come out of that, particularly that that whole Marvel factory, yeah. as it were. How do you feel about the, the adaptations?
1: To be honest I'm a bit of, ag- of an agnostic now about Marvel. That was something I loved when I was younger but superhero stories don't really do very much for me now. I, I can't say I get a lot out of them. I like the ideas of, of those films. Quite often I find them a bit dull. There is a difference, there's something about CGI which just looks dead on the screen to me. I just, I, I watch it and think well that didn't happen. That's not real. And of course it's not real but but it just feels a bit meh. Whereas when I, when I still look open a comic with say someone like Jack Kirby's art just the punch of it the, just the graphic um, immediacy of it is still really th- quite thrilling and I just don't think any of the films have really caught that to be honest but clearly, clearly they're hugely successful and hugely popular so what do I know
0: my When I was younger, my favourite comic always was Roy of the Rovers. Not and right, yeah. one of my greatest achievements as the, the editor of the Celtic View was once interviewing Roy Race. And the, in the Celtic View, we, we got in touch, and it was like just a series of questions, five or six questions. And it was whoever was in charge of the, the Roy Race yeah. character and answered them as Roy Race. And it was interesting. That it did divide opinion amongst readers who thought we were kind of flippant, but I, I absolutely loved it.
1: I'm just thinking, it's something I was reminded of was my absorption in that world was, was so great and intense when I was about 11, 12. And <laughs> this is a, a terrible memory. But um, so I was cr- brought up in Ulster Presbyterian background and went to church every week uh, on a Sunday, even though I bored me silly. And when I was about 11, 12, I was confirmed into the church. So you took a a series of classes and then uh, there was an evening, you know, an evening service in which you were actually confirmed. And I I breezed through the classes, never really gave it a thought. And then on the evening, it suddenly this event suddenly felt quite significant. And I was like, Oh, I'm being confirmed in the church. It seems a big deal. And I do remember kind of being nervous and looking around and, and thinking, oh, how do I get through this? So in my head, I imagined that the Avengers were in the in the where the choir would normally sit, so the Avengers were all there, willing me to, to go through with the service. Who knows what I was thinking? And it, it was only afterwards I realised, well, that's probably not very good, given that one of the Avengers was the Norse God of Thunder. So <laughs> I'm not really sure God would be wildly thrilled about that. Well, at least you, you weren't <laughs> struck
0: down at the time, so it would be okay. Well, I wasn't. No. Who knows? In terms of your literary journey if I take you on from your book from childhood yeah. and it's more kind of favorite book from teenage formative years and, and immediately I think like a lot of people you you realize how difficult this is because how do you choose just one book because there's a there's another ending you know at that age you're, you're like a sponge in terms of soaking up what you're reading you know
1: totally totally and I mean I started off reading a lot of as I say genre fiction I was really into um, science fiction as a, as a teenager I loved J.G. Ballard's short stories, Brian Aldiss, Harlan Ellison, Philip K. Dick was a bit later. So I loved all those guys, but I also loved Sherlock Holmes. I loved M.R. James and then went to university and, and you know, you, you're kind of forced to read the classics a little bit. But I do remember discovering The Great Gatsby and, and being just blown away by it. And I suppose that was the one book more than any else that has stayed with me all these years.
0: One of the many things that I love about doing this podcast is, and you know yourself in terms of any conversations you've ever had about books, it's such a subjective thing because one of the recent episodes that was broadcast was uh, a girl called Nicola Smith, who's a journalist, and in the category, which we'll go to later, of the book that she couldn't be paid to read again, (laughs) it was The Great Guys. But but she did say, she says, I know people will be listening to this going, no.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's it's a curious one. I'm actually reading, uh, do you know what? I started this week just, I should really reread that again. It's been a while since I read it. Maybe it's not as good as I remember it. And I sat down and and I'm only about halfway through it at the moment. I sat down and started reading again. And at the beginning I was thinking, oh, oh, maybe it's not quite as good as I recall. But then I'm now 140 pages into it and something like that. And I'm just loving it. I think it's just still seems to me this vivid, thrilling, kind of heady concoction of words. I, I just adore it. I think it's got a a real sense of New York in the 1920s. I'm not very interested in the plot. It doesn't really. Uh, plots don't really aren't that important to me. Um, I just love the writing of. It. I just think it it just glides. It just glides.
0: When I when I was interviewing Nicola and I did a wee bit of research into the book. And it was interesting. It wasn't an instant bestseller. It wasn't instantly acclaimed as a classic. It did take a wee bit of time from when it was published. I think it was in the forties. It started to really take off, in, in that popularity. And then over a period of time, it's just been generally regarded as a classic of 20th century American literature. Yes,
1: I think it's still. I think Paul. It still has this kind of. There's a suspicion about it. There's a suspicion about it. It just seems a bit too easy for people. You know, they read it and think, "Yeah, that's it's all surface." But I, I think it's more than that. Some writers. And, and the ones that spring to mind, Roddy Doyle is a good example. Elmore Leonard, the crime writer. And it's so easy to read them that you think, well, there's no work involved in this at all. And I think Gatsby's a little bit like that. It just feels so easy to read that you think, oh, there's, there's nothing here. And then you look at it again, you realize, God, this is astonishing what he's doing, You know, the use of language and, and it's lots of dialogue in Gatsby. But then there are these kind of quite lyric passages, most famously the last couple of pages, which is one of the great endings of, of literature, I think. The fact that it's so easy to read, I think some people are suspicious of it. There is that there is that connection between difficulty and meaning. I suppose the more difficult thing is the more important it must be. And I, I'm not, I, I don't adhere to that at all.
0: So it's interesting when you talk about somebody like Roddy Doyle and what always fascinates me about a lot of his books is it's very dialogue driven. And mm. as you say, it can seem effortless, and it's almost like he's just recording a conversation like you and I having. But there's a real talent to make something seem that easy. Without the need for any sort of superfluous description, he tells you everything you need to know in that story just by how the characters talk and what they say.
1: Very much so. Gatsby isn't like that. Gatsby's, you know, there's lots of description, and the description is just joyous. One of the other things I love about it is that it's a it's a New York novel, and when I was when I was younger, New York fascinated me. I have been uh, once, and wasn't that bothered about it, <laughs> but but the place as a you know as a kind of place in my head has always been you know thrilling to me. So I, and you know there's this paragraph here. I began to like New York the racy, adventurous feel of it at night, and the satisfaction that the constant flicker of men and women and machines gives to the restless eye. I mean, I just leaving that sentence just feels like, you know, that's exactly what a, the thrill of a city is. It's just the motion and people and, and noise and all those things about it. And I just think he's great at that. He's just great at just catching something in a in a fleeting sentence.
0: They, when you were sending me through your book choices, and one of the other books you mentioned and that was Ian Banks' <laughs> yeah. The Worst Factory what was it about it's that? Horrible. I think the Irish Times described it as a work of unparalleled depravity.
1: Yeah, well I think there's there's some there's some merit in that description. Well, I like Ian Banks because he's a sterling uni graduate, so I feel that fellow feeling, even though he's a much greater talent than I ever would be. I just remember the impact of reading that book, which would have been when, when it came out, 84, 85 I think. Um, yeah. The writer Douglas Copeland once said, you don't remember books, you remember the perfume of books. And I remember the perfume of that book, which is like it's rank, it, it's rotten, it, it smells of decay. But also, the, it's it's a weird book in that it's about it's set on an is it on an island or on an, on a, a bit of land that kind of separates from the from the mainland in some way, an isthmus or something. And um, that sense of being, you know, it's a kind of boy's fantasy, isn't it, in a way? But it's just been turned <laughs> to the darkest possible setting. Yeah, it's it stuck me with me. Um, I mean, there are other Ian Banks books I love, Espadere Street, the, the one about the band I'm very fond of and Crow Road, et cetera, et cetera. But Wasp Factory, just the, just the sheer impact of it. I think I interviewed him in the 90s, and I can't remember the phrase he used, but he said that, you know, every so often someone comes along and just just changes the the, the tone of, of literature for a bit. And at the time, I think spotting was the next big thing at that point. And he said, that's what it's doing now. It's just changing how we think about literature. And he said, well, I think I did that with Wasp Factory a little bit as well. Just changed how we how we kind of imagine fiction can be.
0: Because you know sometimes there's books that you read, and th- and this is one of the, the books that I've read where I, I think it was a, it was astonishing when I read it, but I finished it and thought it again. I'm never going to read that again. Oh, yeah, it's...
1: no, I, I've had that, I've had that thing, and I might feel very differently about it now because it's you know it has that. Don't know what age Banks would have been when he wrote it, late twenties, early thirties, maybe. I'm not sure, but it has that young man's kind of there's a callousness to it. I think. It kind of revels in, in this kind of Jacobean and the way it revels in, in its kind of darker darker corners. Um so I might struggle to read it again. But at the time I remember being really, really hit hard by it.
0: I was always surprised as well that it was never I don't think it's ever been turned into a, a film. And I always thought it was a sort of book that, that lends itself, although albeit very darkly, to
1: the cinema. Maybe it's too dark, maybe it's too dark. I don't know. It's not it's not a happy story. So 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 maybe that's maybe that's part of it. You're right, although they are They are making now, they're making a TV adaptation of his science fiction culture novels, aren't they? I think, or that's the plan. So I'm surprised more of his books haven't been, you know, the ones that have been turned into TV and film, it's kind of the ones you think, apart from The Crow Road, I think it's kind of his later books that aren't as interesting, to be honest. The Bridge, so how could you turn The Bridge into a TV series or, well, you can have fun trying, I guess. But yeah, you're right, right, The Wasp Factory. I think maybe, maybe it's simply just too dark to go there.
0: listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and Teddy Jameson. And Teddy, we're on to the third question. And that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And interestingly, the two books that you've kind of given me a suggestion of, one was 5,001 Nights at the Movies by Pauline Cale, or The Faber Book
1: of Pop. I think reviewers get a bad name. There's this kind of general sense in the culture that reviewers are irrelevant or aren't very important and we shouldn't pay them any attention. You know, it's, it's part of, I guess, the democratisation of social media that's happened. So why should we care what this person thinks? But it always seems to me, why would you not care what someone thinks if, if, they, if they're genuinely engaged in the subject? I love Pauline Keel. I don't know where she is at the moment in terms of um, her her kind of cultural standing. It kind of, it goes up and down. She was a a film critic for the New Yorker, I think from the late sixties to start of the nineties. I think it was most famously, she was the one that championed Bonnie and Clyde. When it came out, it was savaged by the press. And she was the one that kind of wrote a, a huge essay in the New Yorker saying why it was great and turned the thinking around about the film. So in that sense, she's a, a perfect example of someone who actually shows what a reviewer can do and change how we think about um, films and and, and books, et cetera, etc., etc. But I, I just love her because she's funny. She's she's raucous. The book I mentioned, Five Thousand One Nights at the Movies, is it's a compilation of all her very short reviews for the New Yorker. They're only a few hundred words long. These reviews are. It's not her longer reviews, but they're kind of loud and full of atmosphere and opinion. She's very opinionated. That's the, that's the play. I love opinions. There's nothing wrong with opinions, is there? I love it when people are opinionated, even when I disagree with her, which I do quite often. But I love her because she she loves cinema as an art form, but she also loves cinema as an entertainment. You know, she can enjoy trash. Trash is sometimes fun and she and she gets that, you know. So even though I, I disagree with all of lot, I just think they're, they're thrilling. It just reminds you why you love movies.
0: You mentioned, you know, obviously you love opinions, people having opinions, but also you touched on the whole kind of the world of social media. Does it worry you that that idea of people being able to express a view, even in particular art forms, a book, a film, a TV programme, there's that danger when you put yourself out now, you get absolutely slaughtered because i'm not sure if people are used to debating the way that they would have been before and and accepting those other opinions and trying to bring people around to your opinion or vice versa
1: unfortunately i just think that's one of the elements of social media it's just it kind of polarizes debate it has the idea that everything's binary it's either wonderful or terrible and there's no in-between ground the fact is there's loads of movies that are problematic and difficult or wrong but still can be quite entertaining I was watching um, Danny Boyle's film Trance uh, the other night just on DVD and um, there's lots wrong with that film. And yeah, I had a ball watching it. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I can see all its flaws, but it does make it, you know, it's, it was still fun to do, fun to watch. I suppose the interesting thing about social media, you know, is that we were talking about Marvel films earlier on and when Scorsese this, this year, last year, came out and said, oh, I don't think they're very good. You know, he got piled upon, you know. And I understand that in the sense that, you know, you're, you're, you're protecting something that's important to you. I get that. If I was having a conversation with Nicola, you talked about Greg Gatsby. You know, there's an, an immediate defensiveness about it, isn't it? Oh, oh, someone disagrees with me. It's an attack on yourself. You feel that. But actually, you know, you just got to step back and say, look, oh, it's only a book. It's only a movie. It doesn't matter if someone hates it. Clearly, that's more problematic when we get into issues of politics and things like that. But when it comes to kind of films and movies and books and that, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Now... That said, some people might have you know more interesting opinions than others.
0: When you gave me the, the choice of the two books, it actually reminded me, there's a book I'm, I'm reading just now. It's kind of like a bedside book. It's called mm-hmm. Isle of Noises, as an island. And it's basically yes. conversations with great British songwriters. It's one of those books, you know, like you have it of your bed and you just dip in and out when yeah. you just maybe want to read a, read a few pages. So it's got basically interviews with anybody from Ray Davis... Paul Weller, Sting, Annie Lennox, Johnny Marr, Noel Gallagher, Laura Marling, talking about the whole art of songwriting and, you know, just their views and approach. And that's because of those kind of books where I think you can kind of dip it out of them as well. That's what it reminded me of that. It's a brilliant book just in terms of it's quite fascinating to get people talking the kind of stories behind the songs and their process and how they got about it. And it's I, I would recommend it.
1: Well, I'll have to look that out. I mean, the other one I mentioned was Faber Book of Pop, which is just a big compilation of pieces about music from the 1950s to when it was published, which I think was 95, somewhere about there. It's a compilation of newspaper pieces, music press pieces. And it's a reminder of, you know, the other thing that happened to me in my 80s was I was obsessed with the NME, obsessed with the music press. And what I loved about them at that time was, again, it was just so opinionated. Now, when I look back now, I think lots of those opinions were just bunk. (laughs) <laughs> it's just ridiculous, and you know affectation and and so on and so forth. But I just loved that sense of, and I and I guess this goes back to Marvel as well. It's a sense of being within a world, within a, a kind of cultural worldview. You know, you're part of it. One of the, the the smart things that Stan Lee did at Marvel was invite you in, make you you know a Marvelite. I think was the phrase they used at the time. You know, you became part of it. That hap- That was the same with the music press. You you very much felt like you had to read it because you had to be in. In the conversation, that was the only way to be in it.
0: Also, I've read or I've heard various interviews from people that were in the music business, as in bands or artists, who were either praised by NME or either ignored or castigated. But it was definitely a big thing that those who were loved by the NME, they really reveled in that. But those that were on the outside, there was a slight resentment that they, they weren't accepted, as it were.
1: Um, yeah, the enemy. you know, it was partial. It was blind. It was vindictive. It was all of those things. And obviously, you can step back and see that now. And there were other music press. So, Sounds was the other, you know, one of the other big ones with Melody Maker. Sounds was much more kind of interesting heavy metal. So it gave a, a a platform for those bands, that kind of new wave of British metal. That just didn't interest me at all. So I wouldn't buy songs that often, you know, but I also read The Face and all those kind of magazines, a bit of smash hits and so on and so forth. But all of that was fueled by the idea that I was interested in what these people thought. I absorbed some of that. And then you get to a point where you realize, no, nah, I don't think that. No, that's wrong. That's a great album. I don't care what you say.
0: What I've found, it's interesting, I quite often listen to the absolute 80s radio station. Sometimes there's a song that comes on, and I remember back in the day, not liking the artist, not liking the song, but now I'm thinking, I have no idea why I didn't like that. And I think, you know, that way when you're younger, you have to have definitive ideas. There's bands and there's music you you definitely like, but you have to, there has to be ones that you, you absolutely despise, but there's no rhyme or reason to it quite often.
1: Although I'm sure there's some I I did like didn't like then that I still don't particularly like now. Yeah, I'm, to be fair, I'm <laughs> the same as well. <laughs> you know, you try and be you try and be broad-minded, but you know, we all have our little prejudices and blind spots, I guess.
0: But that's, again, that's in terms of whether it's books or music or, or films. It's I, I like that because it's it should be subjective. It's it's your own opinion. It would be terrible if everybody just did the exact same. I always say, how do we know we're better than other people if we don't have our opinions?
1: Well, exactly. But I also think you know. Um, There isn't an objective way of of reading a book, I don't think. We all bring our own experiences, our own interests to, you know, you sit down with a book and it speaks to you because probably there's something in it that speaks to yourself. Whether it's a biographical detail or a situation or even a fantasy, whatever it might be, you respond because there's something in it that speaks to you. Clearly the same person could read that book and have no response to it whatsoever or a very different response because they're different people. So, you know, all, all books, all films, all, all music, they kind of become, it, it's that idea that, you know, they become your own text. You know, they become part of you in a sense and how you respond to them. Some of them won't, you won't respond to at all and therefore they're just kind of in the background. But when you really connect with the book and clearly there's, it's speaking to you in some way.
0: Do you ever find when you recommend, you know, particularly books that you've got a particular attachment to or you particularly love and you recommend them to other people? Obviously, as you say, they have to approach them and decide themselves. But is there a wee slight disappointment if they come back to you and go, Nah, not for me?
1: Totally, because, you know, the reason you love something is because it's part of, it becomes part of you, doesn't it? And then when someone else says, oh, I don't really like that, you are immediately defensive, I think. And, and you just have to step back and say, well, it's just not for them. That's fine.
0: There's one or two books where I, I do, I, I'm guilty of that.
1: Upset. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not upset, but I just think really I, I, I kind of have to stop myself from judging other people who say The Cone Gatherers is one such book that I just uh, constantly talk about it, about how good, I, how much I love it. But obviously, not everybody can or, or will mm. love it.
1: Do you know, that's a book I've never read. And that's, I guess, that's a, a Scottish book that gets taught a lot at school. I think more, maybe more recently, but certainly my daughters were, were taught it at school and, and they have a bit of an antipathy towards it. You know, that connection with school and, and books can be a problematic one, I think.
0: We jumped from a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And interestingly, I suppose that goes to the, maybe the heart of, of how you read that, you know, you're saying that if you, you're not enjoying something, you stop reading. So it's, it's hard yeah. to, to have that kind of strong opinion because you haven't maybe invested time that, that it's not been worth it I haven't by finishing it.
1: Eff- I haven't made the effort, but that's it. No, I'm a very impatient reader. If, if something doesn't really connect with me, I don't feel any guilt at all in not finishing it. I mean, I think that might've been different 20, 30 years ago, but now definitely not. I mean, there's too many books in the world. You know, if, if it's not speaking to you, don't bother. And there are loads of books which I've never attempted. I'm I'm guessing I'm now in my, in my 50s. I ain't gonna read War and Peace now. I don't think it's probably not gonna happen.
0: Well, interestingly, you should say that because at the start of the lockdown, I started reading, and I have it. finished *War and Peace*.
1: Wow, respect!
0: <laughs> and I really, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it did. It was a bit of a slog. It's about fifteen hundred pages long. But halfway through it, it, there was something that clicked into place. It's quite easy to read in the style, but it's like a, there's a whole load of it. it's just a Russian soap opera. And I started hearing the characters in the uh, voices of EastEnders characters, which was <laughs> which was slightly surreal.
1: One of my colleagues, Barry Didcock, is actually doing the same thing. I think he's reading *War and Peace* during lockdown. Which I, you know, and huge respect for everyone, anyone that can do it, but it, I'm realizing that I'm probably not going to get there. It is significant that the Great Gatsby, in fact, I've got a copy, my original copy, which I bought in Coleraine in Northern Ireland in 1982. And uh, that edition has 188 pages. I think that's significant. my favorite book should have less than 200 pages. <laughs> I think that says a lot about what I like in reading. I'd, I'm impatient and I, I want to kind of get through it and get to the end. I'm not one for big, long books. I mean, I have read them, but you know, they're not my favourite thing.
0: I mean, I'm kind of like you in terms of the reading that uh, if I don't, I'm not enjoying the book. I do put it down and go and try something else. I might come back at another time and give it another go, but if I get the same reaction two or three times, I'll think it's not for me. Because, as you say, there's there's always a big stack of books that are just waiting to be read that you'll enjoy as you're reading them.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and uh, people do feel guilty about not. Not reading books but they are you know why should you feel guilty about you know if, if, if it's not for you it's not for you and there should be no guilt involved in reading at all i don't believe in guilty pleasures there's just pleasures and things that aren't pleasurable
0: one of the things when you mentioned, and again, you kind of touched on the fact that your daughters maybe not are the biggest fans of the Cone gatherers because they've had to study it. And you mentioned that you tried to read Henry James at university. Was that as part of your yeah. studies, but again, gave yeah. up. And I sometimes wonder as well that reading for studying is a, is a completely different experience than reading for pleasure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, homework. And I still do homework because I, I read books for work. Inevitably, well, maybe we'll talk about this a bit later, but it inevitably becomes homework. Henry James, though, I think is quite hard. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he's an, you know an easy read. But that relationship between you know what you read at school or what you read at university and what you like isn't totally one way. It's not always, this is terrible. I mean, I do remember reading Hardy, Thomas Hardy at school and just being thrilled by him and going on and, and investigating lots of his other novels. We did uh, Return of the Native for my A-level a and I still think that's a fantastic book. Talking about films, why has that not been made into film? It starts with a a guy who's painted entirely red, walking across a a heath, taking a a carriage in which there's a woman inside. Then it goes on to, you know, a kind of bonfire night. There's these huge bonfires all over the county. And it's got as his hero, Yosteja Vy, the ultimate goth, heroine as far as I'm concerned, you know, she dresses in black. She just hates where she lives. Hardy's just so much fun, and it's curious. He's kind of he's out of favor at the moment. Dickens is the kind of Victorian we all love, and I've never never got on with Dickens at all.
0: Again, it's one of the uh, one of the many things that I love about the podcast. But just kind of alluding to what we're saying about how everything's subjective is that I'm a big fan of Dickens, and yep. I read in the back of these podcasts. People kept talking about Thomas Hardy and Far From the Madding Crowd, and I've never read any Thomas Hardy, so I read that, and I did go through it, and it was okay, but it was, it didn't immediately make me want to start going and reading anything else that he would written.
1: Well, that's fair enough. I mean, I would always say, with any writer, start with the short stories, because if you like the short stories, you like the novels, and Hardy's short stories, I think, are fantastic. But Dickens is a it's a good example. I mean, you, you like him. A few years ago, I thought, I really should, you know, why? I'm not really getting this. Why Why not? So I sat down. I thought, right, I'll read them. I'll read them all in order. I'm very bad at programmatic reading. I just can't do it. But I did sit down and start reading the paper papers. And after about 50 pages, I just gave up in despair. I just could not, <laughs> could not be de- dealing with it at all. I do like the first two pages of Bleak House and Describes the Fog. But, I, you know, not enough to read the rest, the next 800 or whatever it is after yeah.
0: that. Because I started off with Oliver Twist and I loved Ah. that. And as a result, because I enjoyed that one, maybe that was just made it easier for me then to read uh, other ones.
1: And we all have our our blind spots, you know? Dickens and Bob Dylan are mine. It's just, we all have crosses
0: to bear. That's that's fair enough. There's probably a a Charles Dickens fan who's sitting there listening to Bob Dylan at the moment, shouting at the podcast. Horrified.
1: Totally horrible. (laughs) What does that man know?
0: We are on to the, the fifth and final question and that is the either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And you read you mentioned a couple of books that are coming out shortly by Scottish writers and I guess and that goes back to what you were alluding to in terms of maybe reading in terms of your work and it was Scabby Queen by Kirsten Innes and Shuggy e. Bane by Douglas Stewart.
1: Exactly. goes back to that thing where, where a lot of what you read, there is an element of homework about it. But in, in both these cases, that that wasn't that didn't happen. I just enjoyed them. They were thrilling books. It's worth maybe saying, you know, because I grew up in Northern Ireland, so I didn't grow up reading a lot of Scottish fiction. It was only really in the 80s when I, I guess, I discovered Gordon Legg. I think is one of the great lost.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Oh, he's
1: not he's not lost, but he, you know he's one of the great unsung heroes of Scottish fiction. You know he would kind of was a precursor to the whole Irvine Welsh generation. He was he was around just that wee bit before them. I think his first book the shoe, is one of the great nineteen eighties novels. It's astonishing, I think, and just captures. I remember reading it and thinking, God, that's that's me. And one of those moments where you think that's quite close to who I am or or my experience. So, it's only really been, as I say, I, I didn't grow up reading Scottish fiction, so I can't say I'm well steeped in, in its history or anything, but I do, I do really like it. So, Scabby Queen, Kirsten is the second book, is It's about a, a kind of one hit wonder who had a hit around about the time of the Poltax riots, I think maybe a bit before that. And it's a, it's a kind of fractured look at who that woman was. It, it begins with that pop star, Cleo, killing herself. And then her story is kind of told through, I think, about 20 voices. It's a very political novel. It's about the poll tax. It's about G8. It's about Scottish independence. But it's just, Kirsten's first book did very well and won the Not not the Booker Prize, I think, from The Guardian. This just feels like a huge step up to me, just like a really confident, ambitious book. It jumps back and forth in time and you never feel lost in it. You know, it's it's a good, substantial book. it's about 400 pages or so 388 but it's always clear you know where you are it's always fascinating because it you know reflects and refracts this character through all these different viewpoints i mean she's a fascinating problematic character but she's never boring and the book is never boring and it just feels like a really strong confident scottish novel and shuggy bane is 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 the other one which is um won't be out until august again it's a it's a hefty book and in some ways this was i was a bit more concerned reading this one because it's effectively a a book about glasgow poverty alcoholism and these are very familiar things aren't they then you know that's none of these are new themes and i was a bit "Mm, is that i'm gonna like this but actually it's beautifully written and really powerful and never it never becomes it never sinks into sentimentality or 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 cliche i think it's just a very very clear idea of the impact on poverty and, and and drink and the link between the two and and what impact that can have on families and generations i guess i think it's a very powerful book
0: is that a book, because I've heard and, and read a few things about it. Was that a book that's it's either come out in America
1: first or is it? It's, it's Yes, I think it was published in America. Douglas Stewart comes from, I think, Glasgow, but um, he then, he, he's actually he's a designer, he's a fashion designer. He, he went to London, the Royal College of Art in London, then moved to New York, he began a career in fashion design. And then, then this book comes out all these years later. I mean, it's getting astonishing comparisons to, to Joyce and Alan Hollinghurst's Line of Beauty, things like that. And I guess, that, I guess that, that those are perfectly fine. It just feels like a really impressive piece of writing in, in and of itself. You don't need to compare it to anything. It just feels like a, a world is, is, is described in these pages. And it's a very moving one, a very powerful one.
0: Is that quite a, a nice thing in terms of your work as well, that sometimes you get to read these books and, and get the advanced copies that before they, they hit the shelves, so you kind of know, obviously not every book you're going to be reading you're going to enjoy, it's going to not make the impact that those two did, but that's quite a nice thing before they actually hit the shelves and the rest of us get to buy them and read them.
1: That's if I read them. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> you get know, sent books and I don't I keep I forget, I almost get around to reading that. To be fair, I suppose that's always been good. As a bookseller, you used to get advanced copies of things to kind of encourage you to sell them. So it is part of the model in the book industry. I'm trying to think. I, I, I do remember reading reading books, show you know, in the in the nineteen eighties in advance and feeling that sense of being, all right, I'm ahead of the game here. I I know I know this is something so everyone's gonna love this. But yes it's it's part of the fun of it. Listen it's always nice when someone sends you a book for free. That's, yeah, that's never a day is it?
0: Absolutely. Um, The other book that you mentioned that you were actually thinking of rereading is a book called Travelling in a Strange Land by David Park, uh, yeah. which you said is your favourite Northern Irish writer. I'm, I'm not familiar with the, the book or the author, but I just did a quick Google check on it beforehand. So it, it certainly looks like a book I, that uh, I'd quite like to read myself, actually.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And um, significantly, I noticed again, 167 pages long. So I like <laughs> I like them short and sharp. You know, I I grew up in Northern Ireland. When I came to Scotland, the reason I came to Scotland was to not be in Northern Ireland because the troubles were on. I just wanted to get away from that. But, you know, I've loved so many Northern Irish novels over the last 20, 30 years. There's been so many great Northern Irish writers who aren't particularly well celebrated, I think, partly just because it's a corner of the UK that just gets overlooked for reasons good and bad. But, you know, there's people like. Robert McLean Wilson's book, Eureka Street, which I think is astonishing. Glenn is a great writer. There's lots of really good writers at the moment, Lucy Caldwell and Wendy Erskine. So David Park, though, my relationship with him, I, well, here's an example of one of those books I got in advance. I got an advance copy of his first book of short stories, Oranges from Spain. And I can still vividly remember the, the day I sat down at lunch to read one of them. And it was set basically in the town I grew up in, more or less. It was Portschurch, which is a few miles away from Corrian. And that sense of connection, woof, was huge because you just don't, one of the other reasons I love Gordon Legg is he writes about central Scotland which is where I I, I live and that sense of somewhere that's not really on the on the main drag as it were getting written about there's a sense in which you know writing about a place gives it some kind of reality that maybe it doesn't have it hasn't been written. I don't know I don't know how it's a very incoherent thought but um, I think there's something in that. Park has written a number of books which have been I think all of them amazing and yet it doesn't really get talked about. Travelling in a Strange Land is, is, in one hand, a very simple book. It's about a, a father travelling from Belfast to uh, the northeast of England, gets this Larn Stranraer ferry. Is it Larn Stranraer or Belfast Stranraer? It's Stranraer ferry, anyway, and comes across and go, drives across Scotland. And it basically takes place in the narrator's head you know it teases out the story and and the backstory and it's just beautifully done i think he's an amazing writer it's it's an astonishing book that really should be much better known but unfortunately i think because it's northern irish it kind of gets overlooked a little which is a shame
0: i think because as you say you're just rattling off a whole variety of authors which i'm guessing a lot of people wouldn't have heard of and i don't know is that kind of does in terms of uk why does it become like kind of london centric in terms of literature is that that yeah, difficulty. I think that's
1: I think that's kind of inevitable. We have a very centralized culture, very centralized society. London is the big the big magnet that draws everyone to it and draws draws attention. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's loads of people in loads of great London writers, and I, I'm fascinated by London. It's a it's a fascinating city. But I do think that as a result, we do culturally kind of overlook overlook corners, and it needs a big you know you know you need a kind of movement. So for example, when when Transponding comes along, it helps that there are all those other writers, Alan Warner and. Duncan McLean around there kind of amplifying the message as it were I think that's a that's an important thing you know so people and let's be honest the media is mostly based in London the national media is based in London but it's the same in Scotland you know I work for the Herald we are not really great on Aberdeen or the Highlands because you know that's not where we are so inevitably you miss things
0: Did the the success of Milkman, do you think that's helped at all in terms of putting a spotlight on the literature and and Yeah, I think it it
1: helps a little bit. the only the only I mean I haven't I've got it on my shelf running through there, I still haven't read it. And my only kind of concern about that is that of course it's a book about the troubles that wins the award. Do you know what I mean? And and Northern Ireland's a strange and and still damaged place, but you know, the troubles are now, thankfully, for the most part, twenty years behind us. Well you know, Lyra McKees would give the lie to that death last year but uh there, there are writers now who are writing about you know the post troubles northern ireland and it's a, and it itself is a, a strange and, and curious place but I, i'd sometimes wonder you know if, in a way i suppose glasgow will always be associated with violence and alcohol and football and things like that that's not glasgow that's not the entirety of glasgow it needs it needs to be represented in different ways but you know cliche is always there it's always an easy shorthand Having said that, you know, The milkman, milkman rather sounds like a great book. I haven't read it, so I, I can't comment. So, you know, it's, it's not, hopefully not pretty any of those flaws, but I'm just aware that, oh, well, yeah, it's the novel, but the troubles that wins the award. Yeah. The in,
0: in terms of your own writing, obviously, I mentioned right at the start about the, the memoir that you published about nine years ago. Now, have you ever been mm-hmm. either tempted to go back and, and write another book or even just a novel?
1: Well, yeah, it's always been an attractive idea. But, you know, I'm in my 50s and I haven't done it. I'm guessing that I'm, not, I'm, I'm clearly not driven enough to do even,
0: it. Even, even a book under 200 pages, you could...
1: And, well, you know, I don't have to be. Uh, no, I, I, you know, I fantasize about it. I've always had ideas in my head, but I've never, you know, now and again, I'll, I'll write something down. But the world doesn't need another mediocre book, let's be honest. <laughs> it's it's there's, it, there's lots of them out there.
0: To be fair, the, the one book you did publish, I would say that's not that's not a word I would just have described it anyway. So
1: that's very kind of you. No, I you know, I, yeah, I'd love I would love to write more, but I just haven't got the um, the energy, and and you know personal circumstances my my late wife was very ill for a long time and the book i wrote was kind of in a window in the middle of, of her illness i had a couple of years in which i was kind of able to do that but it hasn't really been a priority for a long time because life you know life gets in the way of things and you know i'm working writing a lot of words every week for the herald so the idea of, of writing a book you know after that just hasn't i haven't had an idea strong enough to make it worthwhile i guess
0: so you just stick to to reading these books under 200 pages and, and raving yeah, about them well,
1: <laughs> I will read. I will read <laughs> 250 or 300 if it if it's required. But uh, do you know what? I, I I love short stories. I I really think it's it's an amazing art form. And the reason is because you know when you're reading a short story or a short novel, you can keep it all in your head. I think when a, when a novel's you know 400 pages, 500 pages, you'll read it, but you'll not retain all of it. Whereas you know if a short story or or a short novel, it's alive in you all, all the time you're reading it. Do you know what I mean? So what happened on the first page is still in your head by the end of it. So so in a sense you you just you get the story more, I think. Now, obviously long and all you can go back and read again and and, and get all the, the details and that you've missed the first time around. But I just think there's something very special about someone who can, can write succinctly and just grab your attention, you know, with 10 pages, 20 pages, 30 pages, 150 pages.
0: Because one, that's one of the things I think in recent years has surprised me that short stories haven't taken off because of the way that people consume their information now, that it's always in bite-sized chunks. Everything, it seems to be boiled down. And so I, I always thought, well, short stories would lend themselves perfectly to that, because as you say, that yeah. I mean, there's a real skill in doing a, a great short story, but it's just short, it can be concise, easy to to devour. But that hasn't happened in terms of of literature really it's still been the long-form novel
1: i think well i think there's a couple of things going on there i think firstly it's very simply that there are lots of other things you can read you know if you, you know you've got your phone you've got the world at your fingertips you read news you read articles you read twitter whatever it is so it may simply be that i also think there's a there's a kind of thing in bookselling that what's that word booksellers don't believe that short stories sell publishers don't believe that short stories sell and it becomes you know Therefore, that they they don't put the effort into it in a in a sense because they don't it's self fulfilling prophecy. That's what I'm trying to say. So I think there's a bit of that going on, and it, and it may be because if you go to Tesco or one of the supermarkets where they sell books, all the books are kind of the same. I mean, it's quite they, they they have a very rigid choice of books, but they're also like big chunky 400 page you know novels because clearly there's a sense that readers want that value. You know, if you're paying ten pound or something for a book. You want yeah. something that's going to last you more than a couple of hours. That is a, a, something that goes on in readers' heads and, and publishers' heads as well. You know, it has to be value for money. But of course, you know, a short story or a, sh- a short novel can just pack so much in. Of course, there's value for money if you enjoy it.
0: Well, uh, certainly, as uh, from, from a man who's read one piece to a man who's never going to read one piece, we can I suppose there's probably a happy medium in between that fifteen hundred words to two hundred.
1: Exactly. Have you read Prousto, Paul? No. No, Well, neither have I so there we go. We're both sorted there
0: <laughs> Well, sadly, we've, we've come to the end of the, the podcast Teddy, it's been, I have to say It's been a real joy talking to you Getting your recommendations And books that you, that you wouldn't care to read again But listen, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast And I'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at Podcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.